If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. For some of you, this chapter will have either will either now be a familiar friend or a difficult task. And I hope that this morning that you will come to see it as a precious friend. Part of the reason why we decided to pick this chapter because it is, in some ways, well, as one pastor said, it's the kind of chapter that if you knew you only had 10 minutes to live, you would want this read to you. Now, that doesn't mean that all Scripture is not God's Scripture, but you don't really want the thousand names mentioned in the first eight chapters of First Chronicles read to you on your deathbed. It's this. It's the assurances and the promises that God is at work in our life. And specifically, what we see is a focus on the Spirit's work uh, in our life in this chapter. And so, um, if you are memorizing, if you have not yet memorized, if you are not sure if you should memorize, I hope this morning will not only help us to know more about the Spirit, will be an encouragement to you uh, on your journey to hide God's Word in your heart this year. When his book called The Forgotten God, Francis Chan says this, if I were Satan and my ultimate goal was to thwart God's kingdom and purposes, one of my main strategies would be to get churchgoers to forget the Holy Spirit. If I was Satan and I wanted to to, to completely uh, derail God's kingdom work, I would try to get Christians to forget about the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty provocative quote, but I think he's on the right track. If you look to the book of Acts and you see uh, the the, the church at its greatest in in some ways, uh, living together as God's people, pushing forward, making new disciples, what you see all along the way is God's Spirit at work. Our Bibles very often, and frankly it's a title that's just made up, it's not anywhere in the original text, say the Acts of the Apostles. Well, the title is just Acts. And it could very easily be the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. Because that is what we are shown time and time again. God's God's people are huddled together, somewhat fearful, but hopeful that God is going to do what He said He is going to do. The Spirit comes upon them and they explode in faith and fearlessness, proclaiming Christ, seeing thousands upon thousands uh, come to saving faith in Him as they begin to spread out across the nations. The Spirit brings cohesiveness to God's church and provides it power to move forward in its mission. So if this is what we see in Acts, and if we take then because of seeing that, uh, this quote by Francis Chan to be one that has a certain ring of truth about it, then the question that we have to ask us is, have we forgotten about the Holy Spirit? Have we allowed ourselves to, to kind of forget what God does in the third person of the Trinity in our lives? Have we ceased to depend on Him daily? Have we as a church body collectively stopped seeking His empowering presence in our lives? Have we stopped yielding to His voice as He seeks to remind us of the truths of God's Word and encourage encourage us towards the right path and away from the wrong path? Have we so ignored His calling to our hearts and our minds that we now cannot even recognize His voice when He does call? Have we forgotten the presence of God in our midst? 
this morning as we have already over the past few weeks looked at God the Father and God the Son, we now turn to look at God the Holy Spirit in our series called Vintage Christianity as we are looking at the core beliefs of the Christian faith. And certainly while this morning's message will not be an exhaustive study on uh, our doctrine, our understanding of the Holy Spirit, what I hope you will see is the very uh, core, the very heart of what the Spirit does in our lives as believers. And you will see how that work affects us even today. So this morning we want to do an overview of this entire chapter of Romans 8. And so I would like to invite you to follow along as I read this chapter this morning. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of God this morning. From this amazing chapter that deals with the life of the Christian lived by the power and presence of God's Spirit, we want to see four specific ways that the Spirit of God is at work in the lives of His people. In fact, He is at work enabling to live as His people. So four ways in which the Spirit is at work. Number one, the Spirit frees God's people from sin's condemnation. The Spirit frees God's people from sin's condemnation. At this point in the book of Romans, Paul has just finished describing the plight of sinful humanity condemned under the law of God. Because of our sinful hearts, humanity rebels against God and is unable to live a life of righteousness and therefore stands condemned under His wrath. But notice for the Christian... That is, for the one who hears the gospel of Christ and believes. The one who hears of Christ's atoning death for sinners. His going to the cross to bear God's full and righteous fury against the sins of His people that they might find forgiveness and life. Those that hear of the one who did not stay dead but was raised back to life incorruptible as both Savior and Lord. To the one who hears that message and believes, who trusts it with all of their heart, Paul says, for that one, there is no condemnation anymore. There is no judgment that awaits them on the final day because God has justified them. You see, justification is the opposite of condemnation. Justification is God's declaration that you are not guilty for your sins. And this is what Paul says right at the outset of the chapter. Through his son, Jesus Christ, God condemned sin. And notice it is the Spirit who takes the saving work of the cross and applies it to our lives. He says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Because of our sinful nature, the law could never save. We could never keep the law so perfectly that God would say, you are righteous, enter into my heaven. It won't work that way. And therefore, what God did was to condemn sin 
in the flesh of Christ's own humanity. So that now the law of the Spirit, this ruling force of the Spirit can do in our lives what the law could never do. And that is live and pursue righteousness. It is God's Spirit who is sent by God the Father to apply the work of God the Son to our lives. God the Son comes, He takes on flesh, He dies for sinful humanity, He is raised to life again, and the Spirit takes that work and makes it a reality in the lives of God's people. And what that means for us is a radical shift in who we are, a radical shift in our very being and how we think and how we live and the things that we love. Paul says that those who do not have the Spirit remain condemned under God's law. He says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But that means death, both physical and spiritual. He says, for the mind that is on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. For the one who is not a Christian, for the one who still lives according to the flesh, that is their their sinful nature, their sinful desires, the wickedness of their heart, they have their mind set on sinful things. They have their mind set on wickedness. That is where they default. That is where they turn. They love sin. And therefore, they are incapable of pleasing God. Because they do not love Him. Those without the Spirit of God remain in their sins with their minds and their hearts set on loving sinful things. And the result is they just don't have any interest in God. Oh, they may be religious. They may be spiritual. But it's a God of their own making. It's a God as they look to the pantheon of of the gods of culture. And they say, yeah, I kind of like that one. And I kind of like that one over there. And that one looks pretty cool. Can we kind of mash them together and make one God? Or maybe I'll just have three gods and I'll just worship all of them. Power, money, and sex. That's a nice trinity for our culture, isn't it? But they will not love the one true God because they do not have the Spirit of God in their lives. Nevertheless, for the one who does hear the gospel and believe, for the one who has the Spirit of God come into their hearts and generate faith and love, they no longer stand under condemnation. What's more, because God himself dwells in them, they now experience freedom both from sin's condemning power as well as its corrupting power. That means Christians no longer set their minds on the things of the flesh. They set their minds on the things of the Spirit of God. They no longer default to sinful desires and activities, but rather the Spirit is so at work in their hearts, they begin to long for the things of God. And so joyfully pursue righteousness. In fact, the Spirit of God is at work so much so in our lives towards this end that he says, for those who have the Spirit... The law will be fulfilled in their lives. Here's the reality. Jesus told his disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus, have you seen your commandments? I mean, they're kind of, they're kind of tough. I mean, I've read Romans 5, or, uh, Matthew 5 through 7. I don't think I can live like that. You know the next thing he says? If you love me, keep my commandments. The very next verse. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus says, here's the reality. If you're my disciples, you keep my commandments. But you can't do that by yourself. Therefore, I will ask the Father to send the Spirit, and He will give you the strength. He will give you the power. He will enable you to fulfill my commandments, my desire for your life. 
the Spirit is given so that we can believe the gospel and so that we can obey the Father's will. And it's important that we understand how this works. We do not obey in order to believe. We believe so that we can obey. See, what difference does that make? It makes a difference like this. And preaching on this, uh, another pastor, John Piper, he uses an illustration of the courtroom. And he says, imagine that you are put on trial for a capital offense. In other words, life and death hang in the balance. If you are found guilty, you are executed. If you are found not guilty, innocent, then you are set free. Now imagine the judge says to you, there are two ways that we can deal with this today. I can acquit you right now, decisively, irrevocably, and release you so that you can live and go free and joyfully and lovingly live your life showing that you're not really a rebellious, crime-loving lawbreaker, though you have always been that way. Or, he says, I can postpone the trial. I can postpone the verdict for several years, and I can assign you a parole officer who will watch over you in all that you do. And he will let you go and prove yourself to the court by your life. And then after that, at the end of your life, you can have a trial, and the verdict can be based whether or not your behavior was satisfactory. Do you see the difference? You don't want the second one. Because the, ver- the verdict will always come back guilty, guilty, guilty. Like those big floating heads at the beginning of Superman. Guilty, guilty, guilty. That's going to be the verdict of your life. Because you can't, you can't do it. You can't do it. So therefore what you need is God at the beginning to say, I've forgiven you in Christ. I've declared you to be not guilty. And now I've given you my spirit so that out of love and affection and joy... For me, in me, you can go and try and reveal yourself to, to, to strive for obedience. Not, not so that I will be happy enough to save you. I've already saved you. But because I've saved you, now you have the ability to go free from sin's penalty and power to live a life of faith and love and not fear. That's the first thing the Spirit does. It sets us free It sets us free. But also, secondly, the Spirit transforms God's people into obedient children. It transforms God's people into obedient children. It's one thing to say what we've just said, and that's this. The Spirit makes possible our obedience to God. By setting us free in Christ, it makes possible for us to be obedient to God. And that's a true statement, but it doesn't go far enough. Because God's Spirit not only makes possible our obedience, but He actually begins a process of transforming our hearts so that we will be obedient to God. Specifically, we will live as His obedient children. Paul has just said that Christians no longer live according to the flesh, that is their sinful hearts. They live according to the Spirit of God. Therefore, Paul says in verse 12, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. For those who have trusted in Christ, those who have received the Spirit, we no longer owe a debt to the flesh. In other words, when our sinful heart says, hey, Go listen to that song that you know you're not supposed to listen to. Go watch that movie that you know has stuff in there that's bad for you, but you love it so much. Go, go, go. We don't say, okay, yeah, I want to go. That's how the sinner is. As the Christian, we say, no, I'm not going to listen to you. What are you talking about? I don't need to do that kind of stuff. I don't want to do that kind of stuff anymore. Our sinful passions no longer have a binding hold on us, and that's good. Because what does Paul say? For those that are bound to their sinful desires, the only thing that awaits them is death. 
And not just the grave, not just physical death. That's bad enough. Everybody faces that. But a spiritual death whereby for all eternity you stand under God's active condemning presence in your life in hell. That's not a pleasant thought. That's not a good place that you want to be. Yet for those who have the Spirit, Paul says, we are able to put sin to death. And in putting sin to death, we experience life. Life. And notice what he says. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now understand this well. Here Paul ties together three things. Having the Spirit of God in salvation, which then leads to a life of obedience to God, with being adopted by God. You see, in trusting Christ, God sends His Spirit into your life, and that Spirit is a Spirit of adoption. He considers you His child. You are His son or daughter. And it's this adoption of verse 14 that is the basis for Paul's statement about killing sin in verses 12 and 13. In other words, the mark of the child of God, the indicator, the big red flag that that shoots up out of your head and waves at people, a thing that shows this person is a child of God, is the fact that you're actively killing sin in your life that you're actively setting your minds on the things of the Spirit, not on the things of the flesh, that you're actively pursuing righteousness and holiness and godliness and not languishing, indulging in all of your sinful appetites. In other words, God's children are going to look like their heavenly Father. The children are supposed to look like the Father. Now, we see this all the time in reality, don't we? I mean, just looking out in the audience at some of you, it is clear who is your children, okay? Genetics took care of that. You look at them and they look like you. You can't deny them. I remember the first time, frankly, I wasn't all that sure. Everybody told me Joshua looks just like me. Joshua looks just like me when he was a little kid. And we were out at the grocery store, I remember. And he was probably six months old. And some old lady walked by and he looked at, she looked at Joshua and she smiled. And she looked at me and she said, there ain't no denying, that's your kid, son. So who's denying it? The the, the point was, though, he looked just like me. But more than that, but more than that, especially you young people, as you get older, like me, an old guy, right? Lots of gray hair. Oh, I feel old this morning on my birthday. But uh, you're going to reach a point in your life and you're going to say something or you're going to do something and you're going to think a certain way and you're going to say, oh my goodness, I've become my dad. Or I've become my mom. That's exactly the same thing he would have done. That's the same kind of thought he would have had. That's the same kind of thing he would have said or she would have said. And here's the reality. That's, that's normal and natural, isn't it? I mean, if you have any kind of relationship with your parent, you grew up in their home. You watch them set the example. They teach you how to do things, right? You, the, 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 very, the very pathos of their life is, is rubbed off on you. In terms of how they think and feel, the kind of things they love, how they treat their spouse, the kind of affection they show you, all of that wraps up and, and helps to form your character. Even if you are your own person, you cannot help but be affected by your parents. And likewise, Paul is making the argument, it is no different than with the people of God. If God's very spirit takes up residence in your life and begins to dwell in you spiritually, how can the radiation of God's glory and holiness not leave an imprint on your life? It can't. It will. It will happen. And Paul says that's what's supposed to happen. 
Just as your earthly parents leave their mark on you and in your behavior, so also your heavenly Father is to leave His mark on your behavior as well. You will be changed in being adopted as His child. But now here's the problem, isn't it? We think about that. That makes sense. That's good. We're thankful for that. But why don't we see more of it? I think that if most of us had to raise our hands, and I won't ask that, because I'd have to raise my hand, we would say we're not as holy as we should be. We don't actively seek to live according to the Spirit as much as we should be. We don't actively set our minds on the things of the Spirit as much as we should be. And so that forces us to ask the question, are we really God's children? Do we truly have His Spirit? Have we really trusted Christ and believed the gospel? Now, don't try and wiggle out of that too fast. Don't pull this, once saved, always saved, I said a prayer and I'm good thing. That's true, but here's the thing. Dude, were you really saved? It's one thing to say, well, because I did this thing 25 years ago, that means I'm set. Oh, really? What if the thing you did 25 years ago didn't mean anything? You see, Jesus says one of the most frightening, harrowing things in the whole Bible is people who have lived their entire life for themselves, yet thinking it's going to make God happy. On the day of judgment, they're going to stand before Jesus Christ and they're going to say, look, we did this for you, and we we said that in your name. And he's going to look at them and say, depart. Depart. Not in any way meant to be a profanity, but in the truest, deepest, most frightening sense, he will say, go to hell, because I never knew you. You still stand condemned in your sin because you loved yourself more than me. You loved your sin more than God. And so if you look at your life and you say, I don't look anything like my heavenly father that I claim to have, do not immediately say, but I'm okay. Because that's not what Paul says. Paul says, if we have the spirit of God, we will resemble God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ. In fact, he says later on, this is the thing that that He is at work in our lives to do, to transform us, to conform us into His image. So how do we have assurance of our salvation? How can we truly say, once saved, always saved, which the Bible does teach? And again, we'll look at even in this chapter. Paul says this, here's the assurance, even if you're not living the way that you should. He says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. As Christians, we don't fear God like slaves. Instead, we love God like his children. The Spirit reminds us and assures us of God's love for us, which he has demonstrated for us. What's more, he is generating love for God within us. He he has given us a spirit by which we call out, Abba, Father. In other words, without the spirit, we can't love God. Without the spirit, we still exist as slaves to fear, not loving children. So when we do feel conviction of sin, we don't fear hell. Instead, we should feel grief that we haven't loved the God who first loved us. We regret that we have not been imitating our heavenly Father. And yet we are assured by his spirit that we've been given, that we can press on a maturity and holiness, killing sin and revealing our sonship in Christ. In other words, it comes down to this. Does the thought of your sin scare you in an eternal way? 
when you think back to the past few days and the past few weeks and you think about the ways in which you have sinned, do you fear hell? If so, that may mean you've never trusted in Christ to receive salvation. Because Paul says that even when we sin, even when we're not where we're supposed to be, the thing that grieves our hearts is the, is the fracturing, is the, the, the twisting and the near breaking of our relationship with God. The fact that we have offended Him. The fact that we have dissed our Heavenly Father. That's what, that's what grieves us. It shows that there is a relationship there and not just a slavish fear. You know, just this past week I was watching a TV show and this guy was disgruntled uh, because uh, this uh, other guy who had worked in this office filed a false report and blamed him for something and he almost lost his job and he said he, would, he, had been, he was biding his time waiting to get back at him and he saw the perfect opportunity. He was going to pull this prank on him and the prank backfired. And the thing that was supposed to pretend to happen really happened. And he was talking to the guy and he said, no more pranks. I'm done with pranks. He said, we'll try and do something, one good thing every day, go to church on Sundays, say my prayers, and no more pranks. What did he mean? He was depending on all those things to make him right with God, right? And he was afraid that because he hadn't been doing those things, that God basically had uh, came down and gave him, a little, gave him a little punishment, gave him a little zing with the spiritual finger, as it were. Friends, don't be like that. Don't be like it. It's not your goodness that makes you right with God. It's the goodness of Christ lived and given for you. That makes you right with God. And if you don't know that, if you don't understand that, if you've not ever called out to God in such a way that now you know that you feel love, genuine love for Him, then, then today, repent of your sins, turn away and say, God, I, I don't know what kind of life I have been living, but I need you to forgive me. I need your spirit. I need to be adopted as your child that I might have forgiveness in life. Well, the third thing that we see here is this. The Spirit assures God's people of their hope for future glory. The Spirit frees us. The Spirit transforms us. And the Spirit assures us. It assures us as God's people of our hope for future glory. Notice in verse 17, Paul says something else about being adopted as sons. If we are children, then heirs, heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. Notice that before the glory of our inheritance as God's children, Paul says, we must also suffer with Christ. Now that's not a new idea for Christians. In fact, it goes back to Jesus. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If we were to put that in modern terms, we would say, if anyone wants to follow after Jesus, they need to take up their electric chair and go after him. They need to take up their lethal injection and go after him. They're saying, uh, we need to die to ourselves and just be prepared that it's not about what we want, it's not about what we love, it's not about what we desire, but it's rather what Christ loves and wants and desires, and those are the things that we're going to pursue. But more than that, in seeking to live a Christ-like life that will require a denial of self, Paul will later say in 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You want to proclaim faith in Christ? You're going to pay a price for it. Later on, then, Peter would say this, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may also rejoice with exaltation. 
Throughout the New Testament, this idea of following after Christ as one who suffered, you will also suffer. But one who has exalted in the resurrection experienced glorification, likewise, you will also experience glorification. And as one pastor says, it's this, no pain, no gain, no cross, no crown, no suffering, no inheritance. That's just the way it is. But here's the thing. That's not what Paul's talking about here. That's not the kind of suffering that Paul's talking about here. That comes a little bit later. Here, very specifically, listen to what he says. The creation itself waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the, corrupt, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul says all of creation was subjected to futility. That word futility is the same word the book of Ecclesiastes uses when he says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Paul is saying that it's a futile world. We live in a world that's stained by sin, in a world of frustration and disappointment and suffering. And yet there is a, a new creation that is coming again one day where those things will not be a reality. And the problem is that right now, because of this frustration, because of this futility, because of this struggle, that all of creation is groaning out for this new creation. It wants to have the sin done away with, even in itself. And therefore, Paul says it's almost like labor pains. You have this, have this bearing down, you have this burden, you have this physical travail. And yet, what does it produce but something glorious and beautiful that says it was all worth it? Likewise, likewise, this creation is seeking in great travail to bring forth not only the glorification of God's people, but the glory of the new heaven and the new earth. But here's the problem. We're still in the birth pains. We're still in the laboring process. That means we're still in a world cursed by sin. Some of you, here may know this even more so than others. Some of you may not know it personally, but you've experienced the pain vicariously because of your friends. Some of you as mothers know what it's like to invest yourself physically and emotionally over the term of pregnancy only to experience suffering and despair when the child is lost shortly before delivery. Instead of bringing forth something glorious, the curse of sin is all the more evident in our world. That's the kind of world that we live in, Paul says. A world of futility where sin has its grip. Creation is not, is not the way it was designed to be, and we feel it. We feel the weight of God's curse. In fact, as Christians, we feel it more than anyone else because we have what Paul calls the first fruits of the new creation that is coming into the world. As those who have God's Spirit, we have one foot in the new creation and one foot here in the old creation. Our hearts long to be with God and Christ in the new heaven and the new earth, and yet we are stuck here, languishing sometimes in the midst of this sinful world, waiting for the promise to come. And in the meantime, as we wait, it is easy to become frustrated and discouraged. But again, God has given us the Spirit to help us, to remind us, to assure us that even in the midst of this sin-cursed world, we have the hope of future glory, that the labor pains are worth it because of what is coming in the future. 
He does this in two ways. First, the Spirit helps us in our prayer. Sometimes we are so overwhelmed, we don't know what to even pray for. And Paul says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. But more than that, since we have the Spirit of God, we are also reminded that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Even when things are painful, even when things are difficult, we know God has not abandoned us. We are still His children. And He is using even the worst of situations for the good of His people. Ultimately, that good is our conformity to the image of of Christ. And all of these things, all of these things that we have seen, the Spirit freeing us as he, from sin as He applies the work of Christ to our lives, bringing forth faith, allowing us to be, uh, causing us to be obedient children, assuring us of God's love even in the midst of difficulty, all of those things, all of those things help prepare us for life in this world until He returns. And this is the last thing then. The Spirit empowers God's people for a life of suffering. The Spirit empowers God's people for a life of suffering. In some ways, that, that is what all of this is coming together for. It's not just the application of salvation, but it's the realization that salvation has not yet finally come. We don't have glorified bodies. We're not in the new heavens and the new earth. And therefore, we need help to live in this life now. 1900 years ago, Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, was 86 years old. And the Romans tried to get him to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. They asked him, will you deny your God? As Polycarp was about to be led to the flames, he said this, I have served the Savior for 86 years and he has never let me down. How could I blaspheme him now? 450 years ago, young pastors from France fled persecution to Geneva where they studied under Calvin and learned how to be pastors and church planters eventually were so gripped by the Great Commission, they went back to France where it was illegal to be Protestants in order to plant new churches with the gospel and to see them grow and thrive. And some of them were caught and imprisoned and faced death. And, and Calvin, their mentor, their teacher, their pastor who had trained them, began to write them letters to encourage them, to remind them for the sake of the gospel and by the power of the Spirit they could face death with dignity and the assurance that God was waiting for them on the other side. Two years ago, in India, 10,000 Christians fled from what they thought was certain death to government shelters and the forest in order to hide from persecution, not by government officials even, but by everyday citizens who despise and deplore Christ. A month after that, in October, a young Somalian man named Mahmoud Mohammed, who had converted from Islam to Christianity, saw some Islamic fundamentalists come into the village where he worked as a Christian missionary. They told the villagers that afternoon there would be a great celebration. But when the time came, Mahmud was brought out with a sword and his head was severed from his body. Even today, these are the kinds of things that God's people face. Things that most of us can only imagine. Others of us face difficulties of other kinds that are also painful. And yet many of us face very little difficulty in our lives. But if you live long enough, you will. You will. Because we live in a sin-cursed world. We live in a world, frankly, that hates our God. 
that hates our Savior. And whether it's through natural evil or whether it's through moral evil directed against us because we are the people of God, we will experience suffering in this life. And the question is, how are you going to prepare for it? How are you going to deal with it when it comes? And if you don't decide now in the easy times, then your faith will crumble in the difficult times. And what you need to understand is that there is a kind of gospel that is peddled today in books and on television and from pulpits, and it will not sustain you in the suffering loved ones. The biblical gospel doesn't promise an easy life. It doesn't promise a pain-free life. It doesn't promise a poverty-free life. The gospel says because of Jesus Christ, you are right with God. And therefore, everything else matters very little in comparison. If you experience pain or poverty, those things, though painful, they are able to be endured because you are right with God. Jesus has said that when he left, he would not leave his people as orphans, but would send his spirit to dwell in their lives. And Paul has outlined for us what this work of the Spirit is all about, preparing us to cope with the fact that though King Jesus reigns over everything, he has not yet fully asserted his authority over this world, and therefore we are left, we are left in this world of suffering. But if we have tracked through with everything that Paul has been saying so far in Romans chapter 8, that even in the midst of suffering, even as we stare perhaps even death in the face, like Paul, we can say, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Because we have the Spirit of God in our lives, because He has freed us from sin's consequences, from sin's corruption, because He has taken the salvation that Christ has won and applied it to our lives, and because He assures us of that salvation and reveals it as true by creating within us a desire for God and for holiness, because He, even when we don't know what we should do, we don't even know how to pray, he is interceding for us. He is at work in our hearts. And in the midst of any difficulty in this life, we can stand back not with pride or arrogance, but with humility and love, saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? And if no one can be against us, then we are all the more encouraged to live the kind of life that God wants us to live. Father, we are thankful for the gift of your spirit. We are thankful that because of his empowering presence in our lives, that, Father, we can pursue holiness. We can pursue faithfulness. We can pursue the task of making disciples among the nations. For, Father, we need not fear anyone or anything. Father, we have forgiveness, we have life, and we have a spirit of adoption that calls us to be holy and obedient children. Father, I pray that you would make us more receptive, more willing to hear and to follow the voice of your spirit in our lives as he speaks to us through your word. We may truly be able to be found children who look like their heavenly father. 
It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen.